NHPR's The Exchange podcast is brought to you in part by Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire, your university system. Imagine what you can accomplish here. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Kanoy, and this is The Exchange. New Hampshire has 264 historical state markers, those stalwart green metal signs found along roadways in every corner of the state. The markers honor people, buildings, natural disasters, battles, achievements in science, and much more. Taken together, they offer a nuanced and complex New Hampshire history. Still at a time when many Americans are re-examining what's been left out of our history books, more markers could be added to reveal untold stories about our past. Exchange listeners, let's get you involved. What's your favorite historical marker? What marker do you think is missing? Email us. It's exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. You can use Facebook or you can give us a call at 1-800-892-6477. Our guests are Sarah Stewart, Commissioner of the New Hampshire Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which administers the Highway Markers Program, along with the Department of Transportation. Also with us, Michael Bruno, author of the book and website, Cruising New Hampshire History, a guide to New Hampshire's roadside historical markers. By the way, you can cruise these markers online if you want for an interactive map of all the state's markers. Go to our website, nhpr.org exchange. And a big welcome to both of you. And Michael, I want to start with you because you literally wrote the book on this. What is it that you find so compelling about these state markers? Good morning, Laura. Um, what I find most intriguing about them is they are, they cover such a vast array of topics. And I think that they interest, I think the interest for New Hampshire citizens and our visitors is you can get something as, you know, a contemporary marker to something dealing with, uh, events dating back to the 1600s. And I think they are intergenerational. I find young kids who have interest in certain markers, having done scavenger hunts with grandparents, to uh, senior citizens and retirees who use it as a day to travel around the state and, and, and enjoy the Granite State in general, but using the markers as waypoints along the way. So, Michael, what image do you think most people have of these historical markers? And let's be honest, they're lovely, but they look a little old-fashioned. What do you think the image is of these markers, and how often is that image true? Wow. Um, I personally love the sight of the markers, although I think people would have to say that I, um, you know, having visited all of them, even to the most current one, in, in the state, I, I find that, you know, with the information that's so limited on there, it gives you, uh, I guess it piques my curiosity and like, oh, there's a really interesting topic. I'd like to know a little bit more about it. And I, I personally think, you know, the markers are, you know, especially when we're in front of an old building or a covered bridge or a site and you just wonder uh, when you look at it, what was here or what was that house, you know, Franklin Pierce's homestead and it's right in front of the front yard and you're looking at a, a president's home. Uh, I just find that very intriguing. And I think um, for our citizens who are familiar with them, 
they have a tendency to now once they once you stop and read a couple of them you got to stop and read all of them <laughs> well commissioner stewart what kind of a story does the sum of these markers tell all 264 of them so the new hampshire historical highway marker program is really driven by the interests of the public it's very community-based um, and any municipality agency organization or individual can go through the process to apply for a historical marker so it's really up to the local community to decide what story they want to tell in their community um, and and then we help facilitate that um, but we don't pick and choose these these stories the local community does and, and really it's not complicated it's simple you need 20 signatures of new hampshire residents who agree with you that this is worth consideration um, so when you go around from town to town you get a sense of what local pride there is um, so you weave that together and that helps tell the new hampshire story Oh, that's interesting. So they reflect what New Hampshire people care about in terms of their own history. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at all of them, all 264, as Michael alluded to, Commissioner Stewart, there is a wide range of of topics that are covered. And I just wonder, you know, what if you were to go around to all 264, um, and I don't want to assume that you have, what sort of sense would you have about the state and its stories? Um, well, I think that just the sheer number of 264 and knowing that um, we get applications on a regular basis, you can tell that, that New Hampshire citizens is very proud of, of our history and, like, and we like telling it and sharing it and educating people about it. Um, so whether you're a New Hampshire native or you're visiting uh, from out of state or out of country, you really can't help but notice these um, you know, throughout the state. So um, just that in itself. Um, is a reminder in the value that we place in our history. Um, it, you know, it's it's a it's an evolving process, and every um, every year we get new topics and and new points of interest. So it's a neat reflection of current mood, and the and the history of that spot. Um, so unlike reading a book or watching a movie about something, you get to stand in the spot that you're learning about. And that adds, I think, a dimension to appreciate the history that we have here in New Hampshire. Um, the variety is, um, is true. There's, a, there's a, ton of, a, a ton of interesting, nuanced stories to tell. Um, and that, that's something that we hope to see moving forward. Additional stories, layers to these stories, broadening the story. Um, as you as you know, there's only so many words you can fit on a marker. But as Mike said, it should pique your curiosity and, and, and encourage people to um, to learn a little bit more about what was said, done or, or built here on that site to give you a, a broader appreciation. Wow, it's interesting what you said, Commissioner Stewart, about, you know, the requests for new markers reflect the current mood. What would you say that the current mood is in the state in terms of these markers? Um, well, like, like I said, there's a consistency over the years of people um, applying for the markers. Um, I think right now there is um, there is a, an interest in telling the different angles of a, a historic story. So, um, so rather than just saying this is one thing that happened here, how do we make sure that we're including the broader story to um, to include different perspectives? And to that point, um, the Division of Historical Resources has recently formed the New Hampshire Historic Highway Marker Advisory Committee to review existing markers for 
potential lack of historical contents or references that could be perceived as inappropriate and develop a plan in coordination with stakeholders to address the identified markers. Um, this is a very new committee. I think they've met once. We're very proud of this effort and, um, and it's gonna take a lot of work to comb through all of these markers. Um, and really it's not about um, you know, editing um, you know, each marker, but it's about an appreciation for where there's an opportunity to add to the story. Um, and, and I think that this is just a really great process uh, moving forward to make sure that um, what is already up there is something that can be valued and appreciated by everybody. Wow, that's really interesting. Can you give us an example, Commissioner Stewart, of what you're talking about? Um, well, there are certain places where a lot of things happened. Um, and, um, and one story um, might, might not um, reflect the, the layers of history. And you, know, you recently did a, did a, a, a segment on the Hannah Dustin um, statue. And I think that that's a perfect example of where there's more to tell. Um, there, you know, especially at that location where the two rivers meet, there was a lot of um, uh, commerce and, um, and different groups of people coming together. Uh, and I think we need to do a better job of expanding that narrative and including every perspective and, um, and, and really making sure that people in New Hampshire feel proud about the whole story. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that show, and I want to encourage listeners to go back to our website and check out that show. It was very interesting, and the people involved in that project were not saying, tear the statue down, get rid of the marker, but they were saying, let's tell a fuller story. And Michael, I want to ask you about that, too. Um, the guests on that show about the Hannah Dustin site said that several historical markers note massacres of white settlers but failed to mention that there were plenty of massacres on both sides that, you know, Native Americans certainly fared, you know, badly during that period. What do you think, Michael? How should the state um, or the supporters of these markers approach these massacre markers? I appreciate that. But if, if before I answer that, Laura, if I could just follow up with what Commissioner Stewart said, because I truly agree sure. with what she said. Um, you know, the markers are uh, so unique in terms of our history um, one of the things that I share in my presentations is obviously stop to read the markers because a lot of people say, oh, I've seen them and I just drive by. And, okay, but you don't get to read 12 to 14 lines of text going 60 miles an hour. Well, hope you don't. <laughs> but one of the, the second point I try to bring up to people is to learn the backstory because each marker is limited to 12 to 14 lines of text and I believe 45 spaces per line. So in essence, it's like a tagline on a newspaper you're only getting enough information to pique your interest or have you move on. But once you learn that backstory, you get a deeper appreciation for, and I'll use the Hannah Dustin story as an example. As I wrote about it, I read what was on the text on the marker, and that was actually one of the more limited markers in terms of text. But once you learn the backstory and you realize that in that time in the 1600s, what you know, New Hampshire wasn't what we know it as today. And um, there's, there's a whole side to that story that does need to be shared. And, uh, and one of the things that's interesting is while the marker has limited text, the statue itself actually has uh, verbiage on there that is probably considered not correct to uh, politically correct, if that was right, or culturally correct in today's uh, world. 
Uh, so having this advisory committee that Commissioner Stewart talks about, I think is a fantastic idea. Um, as for the Indian raids, you had the Oyster River, uh, there was a breakfast hill down in Northampton. And, you know, I guess, you know, everything has to be put into context. A lot of the raids happened because of the alliance that the natives had with the French. And then the French were at, at odds and at war with the English. So when you look at the whole story, it, whether you look at the Oyster River massacre, it wasn't, I don't, you know, begrudgingly, the, the, the native Ab Abnakis weren't just having a chip on their shoulder to want to take out English settlers. They were, right, there's a bigger there story There's a lot there. of coercion and um, payments through the French to entice them to do it. So keeping everything in context is the most important part to understand. And again, going to back with uh, Commissioner Stewart and this advisory council, I think the story can be told whether it's not necessarily rewriting the marker, but you know, finding a resource, whether it's on the state's historical resource website, or maybe we can go to those uh, little, I forgot what they're called, their cue somethings where they post a thing on a marker and a cue code, I think is what they're called. And maybe make more information so people will learn the backstory outside of the context of 12 to 14 lines of text. Wow. Well, it's really interesting. And I want to hear from our listeners on this as well. Tell us what your favorite historical marker is in the state, uh, questions you might have had about a historical marker, or ideas that you have for markers that you feel are missing from our history. As Commissioner Stewart tells us, there is lots of opportunity for citizens to weigh in and make this happen on their own. Again, our number here in the exchange is 1-800-892-6477, 1-800-892-6477, email exchange at nhpr.org. Commissioner Stewart, what's the history of historical markers? When and why did New Hampshire start this thing? Great question. Um, we do not have a historical marker explaining the history of the program. Um, <laughs> So the, the New Hampshire Historical Highway Marker Program was begun by the legislature here in New Hampshire in 1955, and it was initially run by the Commissioner of Public Works and Highways. Um, and then in 1961, the legislature directed Public Works and Highways to work on the program with the State Historical Commission. Um, and then in 1983, that responsibility was transferred to the State Historic Preservation Office, which is our Division of Historical Resources and is part of the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. And as we've mentioned, the Division of Historical Resources does work with the Department of Transportation um, to put this whole thing together. So, um, so bottom line, 1955 was the start. Here we are today, and all along it's been, um, you know, a, a, a annual point of joy for historians throughout the state and communities that want to brag about their local history. Yeah, it's a nice way for people to get to get local and, and to be, we hear about amateur astronomers all the time, a nice way for people to dig into their own history and become amateur historians. Got a couple emails coming in, but let's go to the phones first. Jake's calling from Plymouth. Hi, Jake, you're on the air, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, appreciate it. Sure. Um, so I, I was very happy to hear about the, um, the formation of that advisory committee on the markers. And I sort of wanted to ask about how the committee might approach one marker in particular. 
Um, I live in Plymouth, and out west of Plymouth, there's a marker that uh, that sort of describes how the Baker River, um, which flows through town, was named. And this uh, particular story is a really um, sort of upsetting one, describing how this person, Baker, on his sort of march down the river, um, massacred a number of um, of indigenous groups on the way. Um, but I think the, the plaque sort of reads more as a commemoration of that uh, process rather than a sort of historical contextualization of it. Um, and so I sort of wanted to ask how the committee might approach sort of adjusting um, a, a marker like that to reflect sort of the reality of the, the situation. I am so glad that you called, Jake, because I spent some time this morning on the website, on the map, looking at all these markers, and I saw the one that you mentioned. I'm going to read it for listeners so that they can know what you're talking about, Jake, and thank you for calling. It says, Baker River, known to Indians as, I'm going to mess up this name, Asquamchamoc. I'm sure I messed that up. The nearby river was renamed for Lieutenant Thomas Baker, whose company of 34 scouts from Northampton, Mass., passed down this valley in 1712. A few miles south, his men destroyed a Pemajawasset Indian village. Massachusetts rewarded the expedition with a scout bounty of 40 pounds and made Baker a captain. That is it. It's a pretty simple story. And uh, I understand what you're saying, Jake. It almost makes it seem like, hey, this was cool. Um, what do you think, Commissioner Stewart? Well, thanks, Jake, um, for pointing that one out. I have not seen all 264 yet, um, but uh, this is exactly why we're putting together this advisory committee, um, to your point. Um, so I, I think that um, if anyone listening also wants to sort of chime in and, and um, ask for some reflection on the language or the historical markers, now there's an opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and again, this committee is not tasked with picking the, you know, future markers. We continue to, to keep that a local decision. Um, but it's important at this point to reflect on what is out there and to do what we can to, um, to fix, if necessary, um, some of the, the language or the messaging. And it's a process. So we've begun that process. I would say if anybody wants to reach out to us about um, their specific um, concerns, they can email us, um, preservation at dncr.nh.gov. That's preservation at dncr.nh.gov. And we'll add it to our discussion um, as we move through this process. So it's interesting. So there's two processes, Commissioner Stewart. One is this sort of re-examination that you mentioned in reference to Jake's call, but the other is the standard process by which citizens say, hey, we want a marker in our town. They're two separate tracks. Correct. And the, the, the track to um, request a marker is pretty simple. Again, I would strongly recommend if somebody has an inkling for, um, for an idea to first reach out to us, to email us at preservation at dncr.nh.gov so that we can help um, you navigate the process um, and to make sure that it's as simple for you as possible. Um, and you really just need to help draft the language and get 20 fellow Granite Staters to sign a petition, and then it's, um, it's up for review. Um, there's also a financial component to this, and the, the, the actual sign is paid for by the Department of Transportation. And they don't have unlimited funds for this. So it becomes sort of a... a, a 
a list of who's next in the queue to determine who's next to get their sign put up. And we work with DOT um, to, to determine the safest spot along the road for them to install the sign. So it still is in fitting with the location of history, but also not going to cause a car accident right. um, along uh, one of our windy roads in, in the rural parts of New Hampshire. Let's take another call. This is Tanner calling in. Hi, Tanner. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, good morning. This is Tanner Clues from the New Hampshire, New Hampshire Women's Foundation. Um, I was just calling in um, as it's the 100th anniversary today of the ratification of the 19th Amendment um, to let your listeners know that there's been a group of women who've been working for more than 10 years on creating the New Hampshire Women's Heritage Trail. Um, and uh, recently we've come together to help um, ensure that that work's completed. And we've been working with the Division of Historical Resources and Markers um, to make sure that those 27 women have markers put up around the state. A few of them already have markers, but our hope is that we will be able to um, ensure that all of those markers are put up in the near future. It's good to hear from you, Tana. And Michael, do you want to comment on sort of you know, the the number of women who are honored by these markers, clearly just given American history, there are more men and a lot of revolutionary war heroes and so forth. But I came across, for example, this morning, Dr. Jeannie Sarah Barney, who was a founding doctor at Franklin Hospital way back in 1910. So I'd love your thoughts there, Michael. Sure. So there currently, you know, giving presentations around the state, that is a, a common question that's asked, how many women are depicted on markers. And so I had taken the time to look at the markers and I think there's nine and they range everything from Granny Stalbert up in, in Jefferson, who was a rural doctor who would travel the whole great North woods area on a horse as a doctor. Um, you mentioned Dr. Um, Dr. Barney out of Grafton. And yes, she was a founder of the uh, Franklin hospital. I believe she was one of the first women to graduate from, I think it was Harvard or a Boston medical school, but she was also a, a woman who was very involved in the, um, the women's movement in the early 1900s as a, in the suffrage movement. And there's other people that are very, probably more famous when you think about Sarah Josepha, so Sarah Josepha Buell Hale out of Newport, who wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb, she um, continued to work with the, uh, the White House to eventually get the Christmas tree there with, um, I think it was Franklin Pierce. And I know uh, she went as far as with Abraham Lincoln, but she's a very famous woman in New Hampshire history who has a marker. But some of the more lesser famous ones, um, if I recall is Hannah Davis. And she made those little, um, like little, a little uh, box, like a sewing box, and I don't remember the actual term for them, but they're highly sought after now. Huh. So I think generally we have, and then of course, Mary Baker Eddy uh, being right. born in Bow and started the uh, Christian science movement. So there's a lot of, I th well, nine. So when you look at- Nine out whole, of 264, <laughs> doesn't yeah, sound like a lot. Yeah, kind of a low number. Uh, but one of the things that's also interesting that's probably more contemporary is in Concord, you have the marker, and I don't remember what route it is that goes down to Dunbarton, but they have a marker for Turkey Pond, the hurricane of 1938. And that marker actually talks about with all the trees down, it was the women 
in the area that milled all those millions of board feet of lumber and saved them from being rotted because the men were off fighting in the war. So um, there's definitely a need for more women to be um, mentioned in our history. And I had proposed a marker and had it installed in my town in Bethlehem for Frances Glessner Lee, who is known as the uh, mother of forensic science. And it's, it was really, um, it is intriguing to learn the history of some of these folks that most the general population may not be aware of. But again, stopping to read the marker, you have that aha moment. And, and you learn like, here's someone like Sarah Hale out of um, Newport, who is the, she wrote, Mary had a little lamb. And right. you know, the reason that Thanksgiving is a holiday is because of her. So I think it's really, we need to exploit, and I, I don't think that's the right word, but we do need to accentuate the, um, the, the diversity of our markers. Let's take another call. This is Robert in Manchester. Hi, Robert. Go ahead. You're on the exchange. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, here in Manchester, we have what I consider a very unique marker because it's bilingual. So it's on both sides, and that's for St. Mary's Bank which was founded in 1908 as the first credit union in the United States. Uh, it was called La Caisse Populaire Sainte-Marie when it was founded in 1908. And so there's a marker in front of the first building where that happened. And I teach French, so I bring my students there to, to visit the French West Side, and there are two errors. There's a spelling error and a grammatical error in French, and I have them pick out, if they can, pick out the errors. Wait, wait, getting... Robert, there's a French error on a on a state historical marker? Yes, there are two French errors there. There's oh, my a, goodness. A couple letters that are reversed on one word, and there's another one where there's um, the agreement with adjectives and nouns, you know, with masculine and feminine, and, and they got it wrong. They've got a masculine adjective for a feminine noun. Well, it's good that you're using that as a teaching tool, Robert, oh, but it yeah. um, sounds like that should be fixed. No, what do you think, Robert? As a French teacher, there's a bilingual sign, English and French, and the French is wrong. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, it's it's fun to have students do that, but I, I, I would, yeah, it would be nice if they could correct it. But, you know, this is, uh, what are they made of, iron or whatever? I mean, it's right. expensive to, uh, you know, to correct. Well, it's great to hear from you, Robert. Thank you very much for calling. And before we take a quick break, um, Commissioner Stewart, can, is that fixable or is it just not worth it and Robert can continue using it as a teachable moment? <laughs> um, we, I just took note of this and I look forward to hearing um, from Robert so we can better understand um, the errors. Um, and I, I would say we need to fix that eventually, yes. Wow. Robert, thanks a lot for calling in. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will find out who is the subject of the newest historical marker just inaugurated a couple weeks ago. You got to stay tuned to find out. So stay with us. This is The Exchange on NHPR. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Canoy. Today, New Hampshire's historical markers, how their subjects are chosen, and what view of history they give us. Let's hear from you. What's your favorite marker? And what do you think is missing? 
who or what do you think deserves to be recognized? Email us. It's exchange at nhpr.org. You can use Facebook or you can give us a call at 1-800-892-6477. We're talking with Sarah Stewart, Commissioner of the New Hampshire Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which administers the Highway Markers Program. Also, Michael Bruno, author of the book and website Cruising New Hampshire History, a guide to New Hampshire's roadside historical markers and we're joined now by paul timmerman he's board chairman of the woodman museum in dover where the state's newest historical marker was established just a few weeks ago back in july paul great to have you on the show thank you for being here thank you for having me so the big reveal paul who does this new marker honor uh the new marker honors john parker hale a uh, senator from uh, new hampshire and uh, a resident of dover new hampshire and what makes John Hale so special? And by the way, he has a statue at the State House, so uh, some people may be familiar with him. Yeah, that's when it first came to my attention was seeing that statue at the State House. Um, and then as a uh, volunteer and docent at the Woodman Museum in Dover, we have his home on our as one of the buildings on our campus. Uh, he lived in this house um, from 1840 to 1873 and died in the house. And, um, and as a docent, um, you know, I tell his story uh, when we are there. And um, the more I told it, the more sort of compelling it became. And um, probably most specifically, he was kind of ahead of his time in the 1840s as a staunch uh, abolitionist and a believer that slavery was morally wrong. So he was one of the early people, early leaders to, to speak out on this. And he was in a prominent position as a U.S. senator. That's what drew you to him, Paul. Yes, and he was a very principled man and came to the conclusion that slavery was wrong. Um, it also cost him his uh, position as a Democratic congressman in New Hampshire um, because he didn't vote for the annexation of Texas in 1845 because they would come into the Union as a slave state. Um, and as a result, he was asked to you know, leave the Democratic Party uh, in New Hampshire. That's interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned that, because when I looked at, um, you know, at the marker and at John Hale's background, I noted, uh, Paul, that he changed parties. And I thought, wow, what's going on with that? But it's because he couldn't stay with the party, given that it wasn't strong enough against slavery. Is that right? That's correct. And then he got um, uh, active in the um, Free Soil Party, which existed at the time, uh, specifically with an anti-slavery platform. Um, and uh, he, in fact, um, was appointed a senator in the late 1840s um, from New Hampshire and was the leading sort of anti-slavery uh, politician in Washington. And, um, and in fact, in uh, 1852, John Parker Hale ran for president um, of the United States um, on the free soil anti-slavery platform. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. And I consider myself pretty well versed in New Hampshire history, but uh, thank you for that, Paul. I did not know that. So how much work was it for you, Paul, to get the petitions and the documents and, and so forth to get this marker put in place? Um, it was, it, it is work. I mean, if you want to do it, you're going to have to invest some time into it. Um, I had the advantage of having seen Michael Bruno uh, give a talk at the Dover Public Library about the marker um, program. And then also um, had the advantage of him coaching me through this process 
Um, so I had um, that uh, advantage and that help as I put all of this together. Um, and as a, a sort of amateur historian, I mean, doing the research was actually fun um, and, um, and then providing the information as required by the state of New Hampshire was, um, um, you know, also um, just uh, work. And, um, um, and again, I got a lot of help from, from Michael. So this was just unveiled a couple weeks ago, right, Paul, back in July? Yes, um, yeah. it, uh, uh, this is the first one, I think, for 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, the process was, oh, from beginning to end, probably about a year. How much did the pandemic affect your your efforts there? I think mostly it, it delayed the installation of it from, I think, what we were originally expecting would be in March or April, and it delayed it until uh, July. Um, but other than that, we, you know, we socially distanced and you know, wore masks and uh, had a, um, a, an unveiling of the marker uh, back in July. Well, last question for you, Paul. Um, who or what, because some of these markers, you know, honor events or places, but who or what is next on your list to be noted on a historical marker, recognizing that, you know, your proposal may not get approved right away, but who who's next? Um, <clears throat> I'm glad you asked. I mean, I've um, once you've been through the program and you realize the significance of it and the fact that um, um, you know it is something that you can navigate. Um, I've been thinking about um, at the Dover uh, at the Woodland Museum in Dover, we have the Dom Garrison House, which was built in 1675, the last surviving um, Garrison House, I believe, in New Hampshire. Um, and so I've been thinking about that would be also a, a pretty significant historical um, item to be able to you know, create a marker and have uh, uh, on our campus as well. That's Paul Timmerman, board chairman of the Woodman Museum in Dover, where, as he told us last month, the state's newest historical marker was completed of Senator John Hale from New Hampshire. Again, our phone number here in the exchange for you to join us is one 800 8926477 email exchange at nhpr.org once again exchange at nhpr.org and uh, both of you got some emails i'd like to share margaret says on facebook i love the chinook kennels marker it has a stone with an inlaid bronze sculpture um, Chinook are sled dogs. And Michael, again, I don't expect you to remember every single marker, but this one kind of stands out. Do you do you remember this one in your travels? Absolutely. It's, it's kind of memorable. <laughs> it is. Because the marker, first, all state markers by RSA have to be um, installed on state highways. And this one is on a state highway, but it's like, it doesn't feel like one. And I don't remember the route number, but it's actually in front of the old kennel. And it talks about the, the breeding of this dog, which actually uh, led expeditions to, I believe it was a South Pole. Um, and it, because I can't remember the whole story, but that the original dog uh, that was bred there is now our state um, dog, state canine is the Chinook. Um, Husky. So you go there, there is a marker there for, I believe it was Admiral uh, Perry's expedition. And so there's that stone monument next to the, uh, the state historical marker giving the history of the Chinook Kennels. And to think that this 
this whole um, breed started in that small kennel in Tamworth is is pretty exciting. That is really cool. And I did look at that one this morning too. It's on Route 113A in Tamworth. And I'll read just a little bit from the marker. It says, for almost 50 years, Chinook kennels exerted a profound influence on the Alaskan Malamute and Siberian Husky breeds. And many champions were born here. Dog teams were sent on the bird Antarctic expeditions and to the Army's search and rescue unit. So um, that's pretty cool. And Margaret, thank you for writing about that one. Glenn emails uh, a question I want to ask you, Commissioner Stewart. Um, Glenn says whether, uh, he wants to ask whether a marker can be placed on a town road or must it be on a state highway? And that's a good question, Glenn. Go ahead, Commissioner Stewart. You touched on this earlier. Yeah, uh, thank you, Glenn. Um, so we work closely with the Department of Transportation, and they really help us determine where these can go. Um, it's my understanding that it needs to be on state land, you know, off of a state road. Um, but as mentioned, a lot of the state highways are not really highways. They're um, back roads and route numbers. So there's a chance that the road you're thinking about, Glenn, might be a state road. Um, and if and if not, um, we would talk to DOT um, to figure out something. What about the um, cooperative markers, Commissioner Stewart? I got that term off of your website that are not state funded and that go on non-state highways. Sure. So because we really do want to reflect the local um, desire to put something up, you sure. can you can. Um, put together your own funding for the marker. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier, it costs about $2,200. And if you can raise that, that money, um, it makes it a lot easier for us to work with DOT because it's really their budget that carries the, the burden of, of paying for these, um, these markers. Um, so if we can, if we can um, leap over that hurdle, it makes it easier for us to accomplish the local um, plan for where it should be. Who's in charge, um, Commissioner Stewart, of, of maintenance? Some of these markers are pretty old and, you know, things start to wear down. Yep, and that falls on um, on DOT's um, to-do list um, in terms of ma maintaining the actual physical markers. Okay. Glenn, thank you for the email. Jim emails, another marker dedicated to a woman and very important to Michael is for Frances Glessner Lee, the mother of modern forensics. And you mentioned this earlier, Michael. Here's a little bit from, uh, from the marker itself. This Chicago heiress pursued her passion for criminology in the 1940s and 50s with the creation of 20 miniature dioramas depicting actual crime scenes with detailed accuracy. Called the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death, the dioramas were based on crime scene statements and photographs and were used to train homicide detectives. Wow. Uh, in recognition of her many contributions to forensic science, Glesner Lee is appointed an honorary captain of the New Hampshire State Police. And uh, apparently she was the model for the character Jessica Fletcher on the television show Murder, She Wrote. Okay, Michael, that is really interesting. <laughs> I had no idea. Well, interestingly, I live right next to the Rocks Estate. And when I first moved here, I didn't know it either. Okay, there you go. Uh, but once I learned her history and, you know, new, the town of Bethlehem already had two markers. And I had to say that I didn't believe that they were reflective of what our community's history is about. And so I worked with our Heritage Society in town. We have some subject matter experts and 
I spent a lot of time in the summer doing research at the Heritage Society and putting together the, um, the evidence and the footnotes and the uh, documentation requ required to have a marker submitted. And I will have to say, you know, in, in line with what Paul Timmerman was saying earlier, probably the most difficult part of the marker process is scaling back the information to 12 to 14 lines of text and the 45 spaces per line. Because in essence, you, you feel like you are, you're cheating your subject by cutting out so much information. But the truth is you can't put a book on a marker. No. So it was difficult, but I have to say, uh, Commissioner Stewart's staff at the Historical Resources Division were fantastic. And if I can give a shout out to one of their employees, uh, Megan Rupnick, um, she was my my point of contact, and she was very helpful in helping me guide through the process. And I know she helped Paul as well. Well, it's uh, true, and I I feel like I've gotten a a sense from you this morning, Michael, that you just have to regard these markers as an invitation to learn more. You you can't tie yourself into knots saying, "But I need to say this, and I need to say this, and I need to say this." Correct. And well, going back to the Francis Glessner Lee marker the the process of generating the text and then yes there is the um the murder she wrote um it's a line you know i i believe I, the story of um murder she wrote was inspired by uh francis glessner lee's story but another one that's also uh actually had probably a more direct correlation was the show csi oh wow and oh, wow. there was a whole season where their lead investigator had he'd show up on a crime scene and actually find at the crime scene a small diorama and it intrigued him why there was an actual diorama of the actual crime scene that he was in and that season was actually dedicated to francis glessner lee there you have it all right we're going to take a short break when we come back more of your questions and your tales of your favorite historical markers around the state. Also, your suggestions for new markers that you'd like to see. You can send us an email. It's exchange at nhpr.org. Or you can give us a call at 1-800-892-6477. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today, New Hampshire's historical markers, what they teach us about history and what's left out. Let's hear from you. What's your favorite marker and what new markers would you like to see? Email us. It's exchange at nhpr.org. Once again, exchange at nhpr.org. Use Facebook or call in 1-800-892-6477. We're talking with Sarah Stewart, Commissioner of the New Hampshire Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, also, Michael Bruno, author of the book and website, Cruising New Hampshire History, a guide to New Hampshire's roadside historical markers. And both of you, let's go right back to our listeners. Helen in Wanalancet is calling in. Hi, Helen, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that I was driving home and I just came to the Chinook Kennels and there are th four interesting markers here. The one that you read also talks about 
uh, Milt Masili, who ran the Chinook Kennels, and his wife, Short Seely, who was a kind of a famous person locally for quite a while. She ran the kennels after he died. But also, there's a memorial to Richard Moulton, and the plaque says, A Musher Who Did It All. And he was alive from 1917 to 2000, and he was famous around here. There is also an engraved stone monument to the sled itself. The sled design is an interesting story. But the one that made me actually pick up the phone and call you is an old brass monument to Admiral Byrd Memorial to noble dogs whose (laughs) lives were given on dog treks during the two expeditions to Little America, Antarctica to further science and discovery. And one of the trips was 28 to 30, 1928 to 1930, and the other was 1933 to 1935. And this this one was dedicated October 8th, 1938. So a while ago. Um, Helen, I love that you called right by the side of the road, right at that Chinook marker, and clearly there are other markers there as well. Just raise a question in my mind um, for you, Commissioner Stewart. At at one site, how many official historical markers can you have? Now, some of the markers Helen's talking about are not official state historical markers, but can you have sort of two right near each other? Well, so we're only um, responsible for the historical highway marker program. Right. And so we don't put two of those next to each other. Um, but it's up to, you know, the local community if there's if there are other reasons or other um, uh, uh, topics of note that that they want to um, recognize at that spot. And it's a goal, right, Commissioner Stewart, to spread these out somewhat looking, you might give preference to an area that doesn't have very many historical markers. Well, no, like I said, it really is this, the idea is the people's program. So if everyone is listening today from Portsmouth and decides that they have 13 ideas, and those are the only 13 that come to us next year, um, we're not going to go out there and advocate for um, folks in Littleton to get their act together. Um, We really, we, we really hope that people all over the state understand that this is an opportunity and so far so good. Um, you know, there there has been a, a lot of um, geographic diversity, um, and which makes it fun because you can drive, you know, to an hour and see see new uh, markers that you haven't seen before. Um, and and we really do rely heavily on the, the the people who submit their suggestions to determine where we go next. Well, and I really want to encourage listeners today to check out the website. We have links there to Michael's book and website, but we also have a link to the state's map with all the official historical markers all over the state. And as we said earlier, there's 264. So um, it's pretty cool to visit them just from the website, or maybe it inspires you, as Commissioner Stewart said, to get in the car and and go see some of these. Helen, thank you for calling in. Again, our number 1-800-892-6477 and our email exchange at NHPR. And Linda emails, my husband and I spent 14 weeks during the COVID crisis using Michael Bruno's book and found every single monument, minus one in Ashland, that must have been down for repairs. (laughs) Linda says, it was wonderful. I have learned so much about New Hampshire history and geography. I have many favorites and appreciate the book and work that Mr. Bruno did. There you go, Michael. Um, There's a fan. 
how did you go about visiting all the historical markers, Michael? Did you do it in one weekend? Did you try to, you know, do it, not couldn't do it in one weekend, but did you go every weekend? Did you try to do a set number every week? Did you just go out when you could? I mean, how did you go about this project? It's, it's a biggie. Yeah, so first I'd like to give a shout out to Linda because she emailed me when they were down to only 20 markers left. <laughs> and it, and it was unsolicited. So the first thing I did, I had to show my wife. I'm like, God, oh, check this out. So I was really excited because it makes it, uh, it makes me feel like the project was worthwhile. The, the project started because my wife and I were riding motorcycles and I've been riding motorcycles since I was 16. I rode them before, but on the road. And even as a teenager growing up in the lakes region, I would see markers and I recall markers and I would stop to see them. But after uh, I moved away for 20 odd years because I served in the army. But when I retired and moved back, my wife decided to get her, her motorcycle license and we we're driving and I would stop and look at all the markers. And one night in 2015, after a day's ride, she says, how do you know where all those markers are? And my answer was, I don't. I mean, I know where the ones are that I'm familiar with, but other than that, I didn't know. And at the time in 2015, the Division of Historical Resources website did not have the interactive map and I'm so grateful that they have it now. But at the time that I started the project, it was only two PDF files, one listing the markers numerically from Republic of Indian Stream, which is the marker number one, to whichever one was current. And then the other PDF file was the markers alphabetically which was helpful, but if you don't know the difference between uh, Lincoln and Littleton or uh, Londonderry, it wasn't that helpful. So- Right, new people moving the all state, the time. So yeah, yes. go ahead. And even mentioning the, uh, the day's travel, when I would give a presentation, probably every, every community within a 25 mile radius can get anywhere from a half dozen, uh, no more than a half dozen, probably about 12 to 20 markers. And if I'm in the Merrimack Valley region, it's more like 40 markers within a 25 mile radius. So it really is something that people can do on a day's drive using the state's website to, to uh, navigate where they want to go. But it brings up my third point that I like to share with everyone on my presentations. And it's is to enjoy the points between the markers. It was living up in the White Mountains when I was doing my research down in the Monadnock region. That's probably the furthest point from my home. So it would take me almost two hours to get there. And I would try to be as efficient as possible in getting as many markers I could get and then come home in time to feed my dog. Well, what I ended up finding out was that I was so focused on looking for these green markers, my wife reminded me that I had just passed a, a beautiful covered bridge. And I, <laughs> took that moment, I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, I took that moment to realize I need to enjoy the, the journey along the way of getting the markers. And I find that in the process of enjoying the points between the markers, I, I appreciated the Granite State as a Granite Stater, how much more that I learned about our own state. And I think Linda shared in her email with me as well, all well, the things that she got to see along the way in her journey of seeing all the markers. So here's a question for you, Michael, and, and um, you know, in terms of your website and the book, uh, 
hiking groups really promote New Hampshire's 4,000 footers and there's lists and grids and, you know, you can check off what you've done and so forth. Is there any, Michael, place where people can kind of, you know, if they don't feel like hiking 4,000 footers or maybe they're not physically capable, that they can enumerate and kind of a brag sheet or a comparison sheet of all the markers that they've seen. Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of kind yes. of like they do with the 4,000 footers. So a little plug on my website, I try to make it easier for folks because some people that would come to the presentation, they'd buy the book and then they put dates up in the corners of when they would visit the markers and dog ear the pages. And and I appreciated that, but I, I can't write in my books. I, do, I have to admit my working copy of my book that I use as my correction copy, I do that. But I realized that there needed to be a tool out there for folks to use. So on my website, I took all the markers that the state has uh, with the exception of Paul's um, marker for Senator John Parker Hale's home. And I put them all on a spreadsheet by region. So if you are in the Seacoast region, there's all the markers there. And then it lists the address and there's a little mark, a, a spot where you can put a date or notes. So it is a little tool that I thought would be helpful. I thought, uh, I've had people mention to me maybe uh, uh, creating an app. And I think that's a great idea. I just need oh, to have okay. someone yeah. who knows how to do that. All right. Well, I want to read a couple more emails before we close out. And um, people are clearly engaging on this topic because we've got lots of folks writing in. Andrew in Hillsborough says, even though Senator Hale was an abolitionist, his daughter's beau was none other than the rabid pro-Southerner John Wilkes Booth. Andrew says, the 1864 photo of Lincoln's second inaugural shows Booth within shooting distance of Lincoln. The ticket to attend was from Senator Hale, talk about complications, um, Andrew says. Wow, Andrew, thank you for writing. Ellen emails, you're so right that the markers tell the story of our history, but the question is, whose history? So many of our markers only tell the story of the accomplishments of white men or celebrate historical battles. Ellen says, as we move forward, let's uncover more interesting stories about women and people of color. The Black Heritage Trail in Portsmouth has done a nice job of making this history more available. And we need to better understand the role, Ellen says, that women have played in New Hampshire's history. Ellen, thank you for emailing. And that's an opportunity for you, Commissioner Stewart, to just remind Ellen and other listeners about this project that you have, trying to you know, widen the stories that are told. Yeah, thank you, Ellen. Um, just a reminder, everybody in New Hampshire can, um, can reach out to us and propose a historical highway marker. We love getting these um, these requests. It's a lot of fun for our staff, and it gives us something to learn as well. Um, so that's that's one opportunity to tell additional stories. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, we have set up a um, advisory committee to review existing markers um, and to review a lack of historical context that we need to remedy. All right. We could have talked a lot longer. Thank you both very much for being with us. Commissioner Stewart, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That's Sarah Stewart, Commissioner of the New Hampshire Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which, as she told us, administers the Highway Markers Program along with the Department of Transportation. Michael Bruno, it was great to have you too. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Michael Bruno, author of the book and website, Cruising New Hampshire History, a guide to New Hampshire's roadside 
historical markers. And you're listening to The Exchange on New Hampshire Public Radio. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.